Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, so tonight I'm going to continue our study in Christology. A few points I want to make. Um, Last time, it was about a month ago that I think... Uh, that I talked about this, we talked about the divinity of Jesus, that he is God, right? And, and um, we went to what passages when it comes to the divinity of God, where are you going to go to prove it? First chapter of John's a biggie, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we pick up at 14, and the Word took on flesh and dwelled among us. So, yes, that, um, that is one of the key texts when it comes to um, proving the divinity of Christ. Where else did we go? Do you remember? Colossians 1 is a glorious hymn of praise to He is the image of the invisible God. Um, Revelation twenty one thirteen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first, the last. Right. Um, John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was, I am. And that connects to Exodus three fourteen, the covenant name of God. And so Jesus is claiming their divinity is claiming equality with Yahweh. And the people get it, right? Because they pick up stones to stone him and call, call it blasphemy. Now, so, so a, lot of, a lot of verses we would go to, a lot of other verses we would go to to think about the divinity of Jesus. Uh, tonight, I want to focus on the other side of the equation, which is the humanity of Jesus. Now... Our salvation depends on his humanity as much as it depends on his deity. Both of these things are absolutely essential to the plan of God as it's revealed in Scripture being carried out, right? So, um, but his humanity is very important. What, where are you going to go to prove the humanity of Christ? What texts do you pick up when you're witnessing to your friends and they have questions about who this Jesus is? Where do you go for this question of his humanity? Any? Okay, the birth. <laughs> Those are, that's a good start, right? The, the birth of Jesus, right? Luke 1, Matthew 1, the, the, um, he, he was... Uh, it was prophesied, and um, and he he um, was born of a woman, and the angels sang and pronounced the glory of God. Okay, what else? Okay. Romans 8, 3, made in the likeness of sinful flesh. We'll come back to that phrase and what that means. It's a little confusing to me. But, yeah, he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. What else? Okay, what does that one say? 
boom, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem his people. So yeah, a point blank statement about his birth. Okay, something that's born is human. Okay, what else? First Timothy two, well, I I've got down here First Timothy two five, which calls Jesus the man, Jesus Christ, right? The man, Jesus Christ. Just scripture point blank calls him a man. What else? There we go. Any of the passages that speak about his, the, the, um, the infirmities of the flesh. Not the sinful infirmities of the flesh, but the infirmities of the flesh, okay? So we want to make a distinction there. But yeah, he, he, he cried, he hungered, he, he um, grieved, he slept, right? So those are... Actions of man. Does God sleep? He neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? And yet here is Jesus, the man, sleeping. Okay? Right? Reach, reach in, touch my side, put your hands in my side. Right? And so... Um, uh, He's he uh, proof of his um, of his body there. Um, what about Genesis three fifteen? Seed, seed, seed. Right. Um, her seed will will. Um, Crush the serpent's head, right? And so seed obviously is referring to something coming from her, right? And so uh, even implied right there in the Proto-Evangelion is, is the, the birth of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, so there, there are many, many other, other places that we could go. Philippians 2, being made in the likeness of man. Right, he emptied himself, and so um, now, what's difficult about this doctrine? What's difficult about the doctrine of of Jesus and his divinity and humanity? Like, how does it work? I don't know if we have answers for that. Um, the Nicene Creed and the creeds of the early church attempted to formulate the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, attempted to speak these things as clearly as they could. But the main controversy at the beginning of the church was Christology, is what, who was Jesus? Okay, Was he God? Was he a man? Was he a divine man? Was he a... A, a manly God, what, what was he? Okay, and so, um, so, so they were trying to work out these, 
these questions. The Nicene Creed says, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Really made a man. Is this a real man? Fully man. A man like you are a man. What, what's hard about the, the doctrine of Christ is that we have two natures, right? The divine and the human coming together in one person. So there are differences between us and Jesus. But he was fully man, fully God. 100% man, 100% God. Fully man, fully God. Two natures, divine and human in one person forever. Don't forget that either. It's not like when he rose from the dead that somehow he laid behind his humanity. No, he continues now as God and man to the right hand of the Father. Uh, So this being a difficult doctrine, right? These being hard concepts to bring together, divinity and humanity, right? The weakness of humanity, the strength of God, bringing these things together. Heresies developed fairly soon and very quickly and very strongly, right? Um, Harold O.J. Brown in his book, Heresies, says this, From the days of the early church, we see two themes running parallel in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the eternal preexistent son and the historic individual man. These two themes do not need to conflict, right? They don't need to conflict. Orthodoxy sets itself the goal of keeping them united, right? Those things, pre-existent son, historic man, a man who lived in time and space. Orthodoxy keeps those united. When either one or the other Either the deity or the humanity is considered in isolation and its implications systematically developed. A one-sided presentation results, eventually leading to a position the Orthodox reject as heresy. Right? When one side or the other of that equation of God-man dominates, you've just gone into the realm of heresy. What were some of the heresies? Apollinarianism. Jesus was God with divinized flesh. Right? So, so this Apollinarist guy wanted to like protect the divinity of God, and so he diminished the humanity of Jesus. And so he, he had this like divinized flesh, not like our flesh. And so Jesus is a different sort of man, not a man like you or I. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus responded to him and said, that which has not assumed, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Right? That which he has not assumed, he has not healed. If he hasn't, if he didn't have a flesh like ours, then he didn't heal that flesh. Um, Docetism developed. Jesus merely what? Appeared to be a man, not a real body, just the appearance of a body. Again, an attempt to protect the divinity of Christ. You know, and and this sort of Gnostic idea that material is bad. Okay, Arianism. What is Arianism? 
What does that say about Jesus' divinity or humanity? Do you remember? Arius said that there was a time when Jesus was not. He was a created being. And so it, he was a created being that became divine. Okay? Well, that's, that's, that's to deny that, that God is, or that Jesus is of one substance with the Father. That Jesus and the Father are one. Nestorianism, two separate persons, one God, one Son of Man... And so it separated them out. Two persons, right? I said two natures, one person. Nestorius said two persons somehow combined into this being Jesus. Right? Not one being. It's two beings in one. That is against orthodoxy. Eutychianism. They said in the incarnation, the deity of Christ completely absorbed the humanity. In the incarnation, the deity of Christ overcomes the humanity. Right? So again, it denies that he's fully man. It's like he becomes something that is, that, that is nowhere else in the created world or... Um, which way do we tend today? If we think about this equation that we fall into heresy, if we don't maintain that Jesus was divine and human, that he was God and man, fully God, fully man, which way do we tend today? What do you think? Think of liberal theology. Think of which way? Right. In the tiny little crunchy Presbyterian reform world, that's true. <laughs> in general, you think it's in general with the evangelical certainly, yeah. Right. Right. The Burkhoff, as I was reading, Burkhoff said the only divinity many still ascribe to Christ is simply that of his perfect humanity. Only divinity is that of his perfect humanity. In other words, he was a great, all he was was a great example. Right? Perfectly laid out the way to have a, an enlightened, God-honoring life. And that just that sucks out the, the divinity of Christ. Right? So um, they see Jesus as the enlightened man. And that's classical liberalism of the day. That's classical liberalism of the last century. Um, I think, um, I, th- I would say that the humanity um, is overemphasized um, in this equation uh, today. Now, think of this. A few things. Divinity is infinite. Humanity is finite. Is that a true statement? Divinity is infinite, humanity is finite. 
Say yes. Say yes. That is undoubtedly true. His glorified body has divinized humanity. Um, Well, think about this. Humanity is finite in this sense. Humanity, humanity develops, right? Human, in, in life, life as a human, we develop. What, how do we develop? We grow. We learn. Our minds are filled with knowledge, right? We study. We learn. We learn through experience. We, we grow. Our bodies grow. Now, what gives? What about, what about, is this true of Christ? Is this true of Christ that in his divinity he is infinite, in his humanity he is finite? I see some yeses. I see some yeses, and the answer is yes, and the scriptures talk about this. Here's, here's, um, Here's Mark Jones on this question. He says, The human nature can never attain to the divine nature. The human nature cannot attain to the divine nature. It can't... Human nature cannot become God. Okay? Now, he, he goes on, he says this, Therefore, Christ has limitations according to his human nature. He developed from infancy to manhood. Right? He um, experienced a growth in knowledge. Luke 2.52 says that he, he grew in his knowledge. Right? That was appropriate to his stage of life. He had to be taught by his father, Isaiah 54-6. through 6. He had to content himself that not everything was revealed to him during his time on earth. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's Matthew 24, 36. He learned obedience through suffering, Hebrews 5, 8. He learned of his future sufferings by reading Old Testament scriptures. Genesis 3, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. We must, and, and he goes on, he says this, we must secure room for a purely human development in the life of Jesus in order to do justice to the scriptures and Christ's human nature. In other words, we have to do justice to these passages that say he learned, he grew, he developed, right? Or we just explain them away as, well, I mean, in a manner of speaking, he did, but he was God. So, again, that's to fall off on one side or the other. We maintain he's human. Okay, Lutherans differ from that view. Lutherans, and I didn't know this, but Lutherans say that divine attributes were communicated to his human nature. Right? So divine attributes, his omnipotence was communicated to his human nature. So his human nature was omnipotent. And we say, no, no, that's to rob him of his humanity. We don't want that. He was omnipotent as God, but his human nature was human, therefore finite, therefore limited, therefore he did learn. And it, okay, your, your mind starts to boggle. I know. I know, but 
but God should be mind-boggling. We maintain he was fully man and fully God. Now, what does Scripture mean in Romans 8.3 when it says that Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh? What have you taken that to mean? Okay. Why does it say sinful flesh? That's my... Curse was the result of sin. Good. Okay. Yeah. Because what? It has to be like us to atone for us. It has to be real human flesh. Okay. So does it mean that Jesus had a corrupt nature? Okay, the, the key is the likeness of sinful flesh, okay? Not the exactness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, right? And that's what's important. How do we know that Jesus did not have a corrupt nature? Because what? He who knew no sin, so he didn't commit any sins. But how do we know that he didn't have a corrupt nature? Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? He was not born of ordinary generation. How do you get a corrupt nature? Through inherited corruption. By virtue of being born through ordinary generation. Was Jesus born through ordinary generation? No, it was extraordinary. The Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and conceived Jesus in her womb. Okay, so that's not ordinary generation. So he does not inherit what we inherit from Adam. He was born a different way. And so um, he did not inherit corruption from Adam because of his supernatural conception without sin. But he did suffer the infirmities of the flesh. We know that, right? We already spoke about it. He was weak. He, he hurt. He thirsted. He hungered. Notice I said the infirmities of the flesh, not the sinful infirmities. Right? Common infirmities during... His state of humiliation. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? But, well, here's Calvin on this. For though the flesh of Christ was polluted by no stains, yet it seemed apparently to be sinful, inasmuch as it sustained the punishment due to our sins. He died, he suffered infirmities. It seemed to be it seemed to be sinful, right? It was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He suffered some of the things exactly in the manner that we did. Same human nature as ours, yet it did not suffer all the effects of the fall. Right? It did not suffer all the effects of the fall. Chrysostom says this Christ did not have sinful flesh, but flesh which though it was like ours by nature was sinless. 
From this it is plain that flesh is not sinful by nature. It was not by taking on a different kind of flesh, nor by changing ours into something different that Christ caused it to gain the victory over sin and death. In other words, the flesh by nature is sinless, and Christ proves that. We've inherited corrupt flesh, right? We, what, what we don't want to do is that Jesus was this third thing. Wasn't like us, wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't two, two natures in one person, but just this third thing that is independent of everybody. No, he had flesh like ours, and yet by his conception, it was not sinful. And so that begins to answer, as, as well as I can, this question of the likeness of the sinful flesh. It's a phrase that's confused me at times. Um, <clears throat> Christ is similar to us in all things since we are humans, but not according to all the weaknesses of our sinful nature. There's a way to put it. He's not strapped with the guilt and corruption that we are. Now, what is the what is the purpose of Christ's humanity? What I mean, if somebody asks you that, why did Jesus have to become a man? How do you answer that question? What was what the goal? What was the purpose? To atone for our sins. So that he could take our place. Substitution. What's that? So God could punish sin and forgive sin. Man sinned. The solution had to be a man. Right, Burkhoff, since man sinned, it was necessary that the penalty should be borne by man. And that's Hebrews 2.14, that's Hebrews 9.22, right? Hebrews 2.14, and, and this, it's wonderful to think upon our Savior and the, the, the um, glory of Him becoming man. And in Hebrews and, and you see him fulfilling the, the offices that God gave to him, but fulfilling this, this plan of redemption. Uh, Hebrews 2.14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all those lives. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same. He had to partake of the same to deal with those children. And so he does that. Um, he does that gloriously. Right? Um, I think this is Burkhoff again. Only, he says, only such a truly human mediator who had experimental knowledge of the woes of mankind and rose superior to all temptations, could enter sympathetically into all the experiences, the trials, and the temptations of man. There's also that, too. Jesus enters sympathetically into the plight of mankind. 
Where in Hebrews do we go for that? What is 4.15? Yeah, let's read 4.15. Uh, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. I mean, Jesus knew our weakness. He knew the infirmities of the flesh. And so now we have a sympathetic, faithful, high priest. And, and it's, um, I mean, think about, think about the imminence. Think about the closeness. Think about the, uh, the knowledge. I mean, it seems strange to say it because God knows all things. But, but here's, here's Jesus living through those things. And so, so we have a faithful high priest. Of course, this is repeat. This is earlier in two seventeen and eighteen. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you believe that? No temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man and and but what afflicted Jesus as well. I mean that's glorious. That that is a glorious truth, but again, just to just to close this off here. Um How does this make, how is this the core of Christianity? How does this make, uh, how does this make sense compared to every other alternative view of the salvation of man? I mean, it really is that simple. It really is that simple that every other system is a system of works, of climbing a hill, of, of, of emptying of self, of doing something in order to either find or become the divine. Right? And here, God comes in the flesh to save mankind and does all the heavy lifting. It's, it's, it's simply the only thing that makes sense of our depravity. It's the only thing in, in the, 
we all have an experiential knowledge of, of our sinfulness, right? We all are born sinning. We know that everything we do is tainted and corrupt. We feel it in our bones, right? We feel it, and it's the, the, the only thing. It's the only, only way that we can become anything is if God condescends to make something of us. Uh, otherwise, we're navel-gazing. We're just digging in deeper into our depravity. We're just deluding ourselves with a false gospel. And so, again, we have to hold these things together. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And uh, we hold, we, we, um, where we don't understand, we revel in uh, meditating upon those glories, right? But scripture does give us uh, much information on these things. But we praise God that we have a sympathetic brother who has gone before us to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the humility of your son, Jesus, that he did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And then all of all the, the, the wretched glories of this world, he died hanging on a tree. That you might be just in the justifier, that we might be brothers of the Alpha and the Omega. That we might be forever at peace and rest in your presence. Lord, what glory you have given to man. What glory you've given to dust. And Lord, we thank you for it. And we, we, I pray that every heart here, every soul here would long, long to be in the presence of Jesus holy and pure, and at peace. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.